It's May the 5th, 2016, and this is 508, a show about Worcester. I'm Mike Benedetti. Today on the show, we also have Brendan Mellican. How's it going, Mike? It's going okay. And right. special guest today, Matt Schmaltz from Holy Cross. How are you doing, Matt? I'm doing great. Nice to be here. We are here today to talk about a bunch of stuff, but we're especially going to talk about your book, Mercy Matters, which is coming out, like, this month? This it's week? actually already out. They uh -huh. um, got it out earlier than I expected, so it's it's on Amazon, and uh, yeah, uh, both electronic and print formats. And I want to read your I want to read your bio. Yeah. Matthew N. Schmaltz is associate professor of religious studies at Holy Cross in Worcester. His research and teaching focus is on global Catholicism, South Asian studies, and modern religious movements. He writes regularly for Crux, and his work has appeared in. Best American spiritual writing. He's married and has two daughters. That's your bio. Yeah, that's basically it. I also have a dog, Harold, who's a giant standard. He doesn't make the bio. Yeah, but he does make the book. <laughs> so this book is about mercy, and we have not done a show about religious stuff in a while. But especially for Catholics, this is a this is a good time to be releasing a book about mercy, right? Yeah, I think so. Pope Francis has proclaimed a special jubilee year of mercy, and so he's calling us all to reflect on mercy's impact in our lives. And this is something I actually need to ask you about, because I've read some articles about the jubilee year, yeah. and I'm still not 100% sure, like, should I be doing something special? You should be praying a lot, going to church every day. Okay. Uh, I think it's uh, <laughs> you know an opportunity for us to come together and celebrate. Um, there are special what they would call canonical aspects of it, where you can get an indulgence if you go on pilgrimage. There's a special holy door uh, at the Vatican that's been opened. But the basic thing is to give us all an opportunity to celebrate and reflect upon God's merciful presence in our lives. So tell me, tell me about mercy as opposed to all the other sort of vocabulary words that we use around the word mercy. Like, I think about, I mean, we talk about forgiveness, we talk about grace, we talk about compassion, we talk about empathy, we talk about whatever. Where does mercy fit in all that? Well, I would say mercy is an experience of love that we feel is either surprising or unmerited. And part of the point of the book, I think, is extending our understanding of mercy. I think if you're a Catholic, you tend to think of mercy in terms of sin, that God loves us as sinners is his mercy. But I'm actually trying to connect mercy to other things like kindness, compassion, forgiveness, uh, and so forth as a way of expanding our understanding of how mercy can impact our lives and our relationships with each other. And you sort of divide the book, you talk about mercy from God, you talk about the mercy we give each other, you talk about the mercy we give to ourselves. I feel like that last one especially seems like such a, mo such a modern, maybe a modern way of looking at mercy. Yeah, it is. When I talk about mercy for myself uh, in a chapter, I talk about how I initially think it's a terrible idea, crazy idea. We should all have standards. It seems self-indulgent. Uh, it seems narcissistic and so forth. Right. But in working through notions of mercy for oneself, I realize that mercy to oneself also relies upon our connection with other people. And so it's not about being kind or loving to ourselves in isolation, but being kind and loving to ourselves in relationship with others. Yeah, there, you know, there, there's something actually I wanted to mm -hmm. read from the book. This is this is the quote that really jumped out at me. Um, you know, we always talk about we always talk about Catholics, the Catholics and the Jews as being especially guilty people, right? Right. And maybe just because I grew up in very non-Catholic areas, 
I maybe maybe just not knowing enough Catholics to teach me to be guilty. I never <laughs> I never was I never really had that experience growing up. And even today, I don't know that I think of the Catholics I know as being guilty. But I read this paragraph and I thought this paragraph maybe comes a little bit closer to the truth. You say we Catholics carry a lot of baggage, suitcases, and backpacks stuffed with souvenirs of hurt, satchels and briefcases filled with spreadsheets tallying offenses. Purses and wallets crammed with emotional IOUs and invoices for promises made but never kept. And when Catholics consider going to confession or to church, they often have to figure out what to do with that baggage. Not being able to carry that baggage or to leave it behind is one reason why people stay home. I like that. Yeah, I mean, it was um, actually a paragraph that came out really, really quickly. And it really refers to, I think, the ambivalent attitudes that a lot of Catholics have about their experience as Catholics. Catholicism is a wonderful, beautiful religion that really teaches us about love and mercy. But a lot of our experiences as Catholics um, aren't really very merciful or very loving. And trying to work through that is something that's really, really important uh, and also very, very difficult. And I think being honest about that uh, is crucial. Uh, I'm Catholic, I love my faith, but uh, you know, I've also been hurt by my faith. And Mm. uh, part of uh, writing this book is working through some of those issues. How have you been hurt by your faith? Well, I mean, I do think that Catholicism can be rigid. Um, It can be unwelcoming. Um, And a lot of times Catholics, uh, myself included, don't actually practice very well what we preach. And so in one sense, Catholicism, the Catholic Church, is this institution that's designed, that's here to express God's love for us, um, to offer us forgiveness, offer us hope. Um, And many times um, the Catholic Church is an institution, and many times we as Catholics fall short. uh, And trying to balance all that out sometimes can get real hard and uh, we all have baggage and I wanted to mention that explicitly. Brendan Milliken, counterpoint. <laughs> I don't None. Know. No, I'm, I'm just listening. Keep going. Uh, no, I, I, yeah, keep going. I'm listening. You know what, I, if I did have one thing that I'd love to ask though is in your experience uh, both as a Catholic, as a author, researcher, but also as a professor. Like, what kind of relationship do you find with the administration of the Holy Cross in terms of your own personal view? Do they enter into the classroom at all? Are you, are you, you mentioned rigidity in terms of Catholicism. Do you find that that extends to, like, say, higher ed universe and whatnot? Or are you give a lot of latitude in terms of what you're able to bring into the classroom from that? both personal and professional? Yeah, I'm certainly given a lot of latitude and academic freedom in the classroom. So in terms of Holy Cross, I'm very grateful that uh, the administration has been supportive of me. However, I think the whole context of Catholic higher education can be really contentious. And so it's not just about, say, Holy Cross. Holy Cross exists within a Catholic universe that's really, really contentious. And so even though, you know, the administration, my students, my colleagues would be very supportive of me. If I publish on a controversial topic, uh, my inbox will be filled with emails that are critical, saying that I'm going to hell and so forth. Uh-huh. So uh, Catholicism exists in this really, really uh, contentious environment in the United States. And uh, for those of us lucky to teach, um, it doesn't necessarily impact us in the classroom, but it does in our lives outside of it. I want to ask you a little bit about, I don't know, maybe to talk to you a little bit also about comparative religion. And you said you, you, said you were focusing mostly on, you, your specialties are in sort of Mormonism versus Catholicism and 
what other areas? Well, actually, I lived for four years in India and Pakistan, right. and my most specific area of research concerns Catholics in India, yeah. and how Catholics have negotiated their identity as Indians. I recently expanded to include Mormonism. Um, I have a lot of Mormon friends, and I'm very involved in Mormon-Catholic dialogue. I just went to BYU about six weeks ago mm -hmm. to talk about those kinds of issues. So I'm really interested in how people from different, seemingly radically different religious backgrounds can get together and learn something from one another and become friends beyond simply discussing issues and in intellectual isolation. I have to say, I've definitely had that experience. Mm -hmm. I think that, I think that the, the the thing that most helped me understand the Catholic sacraments was a conference on Catholic Mennonite dialogue and reading their documents and hearing the Mennonites describing themselves in contrast to the Catholics made me say, "Aha." Because it's so easy, in so many things, it's easy to be like, well, of course you have mustard on a hot dog or whatever. What else would you have? And then at some point, somebody, you see somebody, somebody's like, well, you could put ketchup on there. And you and your mustard-eating community may have never considered that. And once you realize that, you're like, oh, well, how, how ridiculous that I never thought about that. But, yeah, we bring, our, our, we, we and our communities bring so, so many, uh, I don't know, so many specifics sometimes to issues that we don't, we don't, Sometimes can't see a broader picture. Right, and I think uh, friends of ours, people we know from other religious traditions, can point out aspects of our own faith that, as you say, we've kind of accepted without really thinking or haven't really noticed, but are actually rich and full of meaning. So one of the things I try to do in the classroom is to talk a little bit about how Catholicism is perceived by outsiders um, as a way of charting out what makes it distinctive to be a Catholic vis-a-vis -vis other religious traditions. You know, one thing I want to talk about is something that happened in Worcester this weekend. Do you know, do you know about the Mandaeans? I don't know very much, no. You know about the Mandaeans. Mostly from our conversations here on the show. In, in, yeah, right. In the past, we, we've had a few conversations about the population here in Worcester, and then I, I think you and I both went on our own sort of oh, formal... Right. Like, there's, there's a fire truck coming right there. Coming here? Right Neither of us are on fire. Let's give them a second. The, uh... sort of self-discovery uh, or discovery period about what the community actually was made up of, the point of origin, and I think we found it equally fascinating that they were both primarily here in Worcester on a global level, uh, and that they even existed. But. Yeah, so so just for those people who don't know, <laughs> for you to keep you in suspense, and I don't want to lecture too much about them as though I'm some sort of expert, the Mandaeans are a religious and ethnic group that come out of the Middle East. Most of them until recent decades lived in Iraq, I think especially in Baghdad. And they are you know, pacifist, maybe have some vegetarian tendencies. They have some overlap with the Jewish and Christian traditions, but some non-overlap. They're not into Moses, they're not into Abraham, they're not into Jesus. They really trace themselves spiritually as well as I think culturally back to John the Baptist. They, so there's a certain amount of like Zoroastrian, what I would think of Zoroastrianism mm -hmm. mixed in there, but they are just a very different thing. And, you know, they have been persecuted for a long time. And, you know, um, I think to the extent they haven't been persecuted, have done well, have been 
known as being professors and educated people, but then especially in recent years, they've just been so bombed and, and just their life has been such hell. Almost all of them have left. Maybe the biggest chunk has, go, chunk has gone to Iran. Uh, Sweden has a lot of Mandaeans that have gone there, but then the United States has had a few thousand, and of those in the United States, this is where they are. So they have been a very tight-knit, very close-off group from what I understand, and in fact, for years on this show, we talked about them on and off and on and how I'm trying to meet Mandans. And then last week, I was talking to the guy who runs the store by my house, and he's like, you should come to this festival for my people tomorrow. And he hands me this piece of paper about the Mandan Festival. <laughs> and according, according to the paper, you know, it's like a Holy Cross religion class, I guess, has gotten to know them and talk to them more. Oh, and okay. they said, we sort of want to reach out. We're ready to have a public forum, a public festival. And so it was sort of amazing to see, uh, like I said, first of all, to realize that this guy who I've known for years <laughs> is one of this mysterious group, but also just to get to talk to people. But I want to connect that back into what we're saying because it's also kind of a similar thing. When you see symbols that are being used by people who are coming from the same part of the world or maybe the same era, but a very different take on it, you suddenly realize how much overlap, how much contrast there is. Yeah, and um, I think also, too, we have the tendency, at least uh, reinforced by the media, to think of the Middle East as a kind of religiously monolithic place, yeah. uh, and really it's quite diverse, and there are these really uh, incredible ancient traditions like the Mandats that survive. Right. But I just got to say, it really says something really neat about Worcester, I think, that uh, a community like that can be welcomed here, and, and I hope feel at home. It makes me uh, super proud of Worcester yeah. to realize that this is going on. Here. Yeah, and uh, one of the things I think is really, really great about Worcester that I've appreciated since I moved here in 1998 is its diversity. You know, I think in a lot of ways we can do maybe a better job of bringing people together, but there's just a wonderful cultural richness to, to the city that's there for all of us to, to learn from and to benefit from. And so. You know, it's great to hear about this festival. You yeah. know, I, I wish I was kind of in the know more. I would have gone. I know. Yeah. yeah, they did it. I mean, with all due respect to the Mandan community, you didn't do a great job publicizing <laughs> this. <laughs> but, you know, it was, it was like I said, I was personally, it was for me, like a, I think also a great opening into having further conversations. And I think it was just the beginning of probably years and years of dialogue with uh, with the rest of the community. Yeah, and um, you know, to uh, tie it into the whole notion of mercy, I mean, the, uh, welcoming people, especially people from war-torn areas where they're persecuted, is something that's really, really important. I mean, it's always been important, but it's certainly very important now, and I think it's, it's sad that in some parts of the country, what we have now is suspicion, you know, a sense of threat, a sense of danger, as opposed to openness and a willingness to express mercy to people who have really been through a lot. And um, again, I think it's, it's fantastic that Worcester has opened its arms to a number of, of different groups uh, of people who really are in need, and uh, that the community of Worcester can, can embrace them, I think, is just wonderful. Cool. Anything, Brendan? Yeah, no, just to follow up on your statements about diversity, because as a lifer here, I couldn't agree more. And it's, it's amazing when, I think, terms like diversity, they, they're, they, they've taken on a life of their own in, in sort of a popular context and whatnot. Yeah. But even while talking about, like, Catholicism, if you, if you were, like, say, an Irish Catholic kid who grew up in Worcester, you, yeah. you grew up knowing everything there was to know about Catholicism based on what you learned in Sunday school right. and whatnot. 
And then when you look at the, the population that we have in Worcester now, the the the, the, the numerous flavors of Catholicism that have come yeah. into the city because we're known as a hub of, of Catholicism and, and a safe place for immigrant populations mm-hmm. to move to. But then you realize as a Catholic that, wow, like, I knew nothing about Catholicism internationally uh, and the way it's practiced in other parts of the world uh, based only on my early childhood experience. That's actually a, a really fascinating thing to walk through, like a personal exercise to realize that even a term as simple, seemingly simple as diversity doesn't necessarily mean what you thought that it meant. It, it, in some way, it could actually be um, uh, it, it, more of a, an evaluation of, of, of yourself as well, too, and a learning experience that you can almost internalize. It, again, you know, we, we were all raised to think that this religion is one thing, and then you start realizing how many flavors there are. That, looking through your bio, and yeah. you were just talking here, uh, a lot of people probably don't realize that there are uh, flavors of, of Catholic mysticism that are alive and well throughout the world, that, that are practiced th- throughout the world, and a lot of those populations are starting to move here for any number of reasons. Yeah. And they're the very groups that are uh, revitalizing parishes that uh, had empty pews for years, and yeah. now suddenly the whole tone of those masses are changing. It's a beautiful thing to see, and, and I think it does speak volumes to uh, Worcester as uh, a far more welcoming city than we oftentimes give our credit for, give ourselves credit yeah. for, and we really do reap the benefits of that generation after generation as our sort of fabric uh, builds upon itself. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, you know, certainly with Catholicism, there's this very, very strong ethnic experience that most people identify with, and it's it can be really challenging on one level, but also liberating to find that there are different styles of being Catholic, and that there is a kind of diversity in unity or unity and diversity in the Catholic tradition. Um, you know, that's what my research is about, and in some ways, too, that's what my faith life is about. Uh, sometimes I don't feel as though I fit that well into conventional American categories of what it means to be Catholic, mm. but go to India and so forth, at least uh, the very fact that being Catholic means that you're different <laughs> means that people who are Catholic <laughs> share a lot more than they perhaps ordinarily would. There so. you go. Yeah, it's, you know, it's great. I have always felt like I fit in very well in the Catholic situations, and maybe it is from, you know, I mostly grew up Catholic in Oklahoma, in an area where there's a lot of Pentecostals, a lot of Southern Baptists, almost no, no Catholics. Whereabouts in Oklahoma? Uh, Muskogee, Oklahoma. Muskogee, okay. Yeah. So I spent time in Ida Bell in Curtin County. Okay, there you, there you yeah. go. But, and so it's maybe just this sense of, like, being, that being a Catholic was kind of a weird thing. It wasn't until, as, sorry, as you get older and older, suddenly you realize, like, oh, wait a second, this is kind of, like, a weird thing that we're doing here. And maybe that's, I mean, maybe that's been a great blessing because I never feel like I'm in a Catholic situation, almost never feel like I'm in a Catholic situation and feel like, am I an outsider here? Am I accepted here? Maybe people are rejecting me all the time, but I don't, I'm not aware of that. (laughs) I don't know. I think it's a really instructive experience, both intellectually and spiritually, to be a Catholic in a minority situation because Mm -hmm. it brings a kind of perspective to what you're doing, your faith life and so forth that's really distinctive and allows you, I think, to adapt much more and to find also commonalities with people. You know, I find in majority Catholic contexts, Catholics fight and debate about all sorts of very, very small things, at Mm -hmm. least it seems to me. And uh, when you're a minority Catholic, uh, similarities, I think, are, are emphasized in a nice way. And you also have to deal with people from different faith traditions, which is, uh, also quite rewarding in and of itself. It is, it is. It's very, I mean, I, I uh, all the Bible verses I know, I know because <laughs> of uh, going to, going to, uh, uh, you know, Southern Baptist, uh, mm-hmm. 
I don't know what you call it, prayer meeting or whatever, as a kid and being forced to mention, memorize this and that in Corinthians cool. or John or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So I, good job. Thank you, Southern Baptist, yeah. for making me learn <laughs> all those see? Bible verses. Um, you know, I want to talk about a little bit more about the book. Um, but actually, I think there's one, uh, since we're going on about how much we love Worcester, probably the biggest news in the Worcester this month is not the redevelopment plan for this area. It's probably not a new police chief. It's that New York Times Magazine article about Worcester that came out last week. Really cool piece. We, me and Dee Walls talked about it a little bit last week. Uh, we didn't talk to you, though. No, I wasn't you're, able to make the show. You're in favor of it? Yeah, no, I, I thought it was fascinating. I, I think in a lot of ways it it's kind of gets to the meat of what I think the kind of story that we've been trying to tell for years now about Worcester, that, you know, it's, it's not... Uh, you can't just pick, like, a snapshot, like a moment in time about a city like this that has as deep a history uh, as Worcester does and also that, 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 that an evolving history over time. It hasn't been a constant. So and I think people like in Worcester like to just pick a snapshot in time and say they, they think they know everything there is to know about the city based on that snapshot. And it, it does You mean th- like a snapshot of like a particular year or yeah, a particular just a mo- community? You know, the, the, the good old days, whatever that may be right. for any, any, any right. given person. And I think that author did a great, Davidson said his last name? I think it's Adam Davidson. Yeah. Adam Davidson. I, it really, I think, did justice to the idea of um, you know a, a multi generational family in being from Worcester, uh, being able to recognize that the city was able to provide uh, a pathway to uh, the middle class and uh, you know a middle class uh, lifestyle for his family, but simultaneously be able to recognize that a couple missteps for a city not prepared for deindustrialization or a change in the workforce or changing expectations for. Uh, higher education or whatever whatever the case may be can really have some some substantial consequences for the fabric of the city overall I, I got the sense that a lot of folks were knocking the article as it wasn't it wasn't fair that you know you're just taking swings at, at a city while it's down I think it was a really genuine and heartfelt kind of expose on one family's history that's also a, it's a shared story for anybody that's that that's family has been in Worcester for multiple generations mm. and we can't just always be sitting around saying you know my grandfather used to tell me that when the factories were open, you know, there'd be some people on the side of the road offering you a job. So those factories aren't coming back. So it is time to rewrite our own history, re- rewrite our future based on what we know about uh, our expectations of the future, based on what we know about the city's history and not be ignoring that history. And yeah, I don't know, I thought it was a beautiful piece. You're an, you're an old, you're an old, you're an old Worcester guy. Do you, did you recognize your families? Were, were your families immigrants in the city of Worcester? Yeah, four generations ago. Came from County Clare in Ireland, uh, straight here. And uh, it was actually two two or three different small groups of Melicans that grew up on High Street in County Clare, Ireland, and uh, in Lily Casey, and came to Worcester. And Worcester's really been the only place they've been, but it's the exact same story. Hmm. We've had a couple family members that have gone through family history recently and put together some really incredible uh, books on, you know, what the family lineage was like in Worcester. I mean, in Ireland, and then back, uh, on this side of the uh, the pond, and uh, it's the same story that I think any immigrant family tells. They came here with nothing. They came here for the worst of reasons, uh, and when they got here, they found a community that was willing to embrace them, relatively small at the time, and help set them on a, a completely different tra- trajectory than they would have found had they stayed in Ireland. And then there are all these other accessories that are also huge too. World War II, you know, I mean, the the impact on the middle class in terms of completely changing our economic landscapes for cities like Worcester. But yeah, I mean, it's it's incredible stuff, and I think it's the, the, the an identical story to what that author was trying to get across. And it's not a knock on the city at all. It's a simple reality that you know we, we have to be willing to look at ourselves in the mi- mirror uh, and accept our past to uh, figure out where we're headed in the future. I have to say, my my opinion is. 
the most positive Worcester article ever, if it was going to be true to Worcester, used to be 40% negative. Yeah. <laughs> otherwise, it's, otherwise, it's not telling the truth, and it's also not true to the spirit of Worcester, which is to give the city a hard time, even if you love it. You, you can't always be patting yourself on the back and celebrating the things you do right without acknowledging the missteps as well, and we're not always that great about that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I grew up in Amherst, which is in the western part of the state, uh-huh. and, uh, you know, Worcester was, like, considered to be the hard scrap of town, uh, you know, you go there, you, you know, lock your doors, you, uh, you know, prepare for, you know, really gritty environment, and, you know, some of that maybe is true in certain parts, but, you know, moving here, it's a really great place for a family, I gotta say. And um, do you, you know, do you all live in the city? Well, we live right outside in Paxton, okay. like in the sort of like actually. That's fine. You know, thirty gonna... you know thirty feet over the town line okay. and stuff all like right. that. But uh, close enough. You know, I, you know, for us, it, it's uh, you know been great. Um, it's been a great place to raise a family and stuff uh-huh. like that. And there are neat things going on. And uh, you know, Worcester also doesn't have the kind of pretentiousness either that you know a lot of places in Massachusetts can have quite mm. honestly and mm. so you know I think there's a nice sort of you know top to bottom kind of accessibility about the place um, which is really really neat though of course you know there are challenges but you also see education biotech and, and a lot of neat things that are happening so it's a complex story I want to ask you one more question about this book yeah so this book even though the topic is about mercy and mm-hmm. you certainly have the intellectual uh, horsepower to be able to talk about things in a technical way it's really uh, based around a series of personal essays, experiences that you've had, things that you've tried, and you're pretty merciless with yourself <laughs> in some of these essays. Like you definitely, I mean, you definitely talk about. Like I feel like there's ways that we talk about adversity that we and mistakes we've made and whatever that there are narratives in our culture where you can talk about mistakes you're ma- you've made and somehow it comes out praising yourself anyway. Where mm-hmm. you say, well, what's you know, what's your greatest flaw? Well, I work too. Well, my greatest flaw is I'm just too caring of a person. That kind of stuff. Whereas you really are like, there's really some stories in here of things which are just like embarrassing or sad. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I'm a human being and I'm a work in progress. And, you know, I think the important thing is this. Um, What Pope Francis is asking us to do is to really be bold about sharing our experiences of mercy. And in order to do that, we have to be honest with ourselves and honest with other people. And so what I hope to do is by, you know, being honest as I see it about my own shortcomings and, and how those in some ways have been redeemed and, and embraced by people, mm. then maybe other people will be empowered to share similar kinds of stories. And, uh, you know, I, I don't really see it as being merciless to myself. I see it as being honest. I am kind of tough on myself, but, uh, you know, that's part of being Catholic, too. And, uh, <laughs> you know... <laughs> It has to hurt a little bit to be legit. You know, yeah, and but but the thing is, I think too. I mean, I pick up memoirs and read them all the time, and as you say, there are these kind of, you know, clever ways in which people uh, are uh, sort of feign humility and honesty and so forth, and really, in the end, it's it's designed to uh, praise themselves, uh, particularly over and against other people, and I wanted to avoid doing. Wanted to be honest and you know have people open the book and say, well, gee, you know, this is a guy who really struggled with some stuff, you know, but he's able to talk about it. Well, thanks for writing. Thanks for being on the yeah. show, Brendan. Any final any final words for today? You got nothing. It's fantastic. Thank you for coming on. All right. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Our guest again, Matt Schmaltz, professor at Holy Cross. The book Mercy Matters: 
Opening Yourself to the Life-Changing Gift, published by Our Sunday Visitor. I'm Mike Benedetti. Thanks for watching the show. If you have any questions or comments or complaints, the email address is pieandcoffee at gmail.com. Everybody, we'll see you next week.